Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, I'm going to talk about zero trust. And what the heck is it? What can you do about it? And it really just shouldn't be that scary. Zero trust is, from my perspective, the thing that everybody should have been doing all the time anyhow. So let's break it down and understand why it's something that you need to understand. So first off, zero trust is something you need to understand just from a premise of challenging the paradigm of the way in which you think about security risk mitigation and information security risk management. So at an authentication level, what is zero trust? Well, it's like, think about multi-factor authentication with conditional access. Something like, how do we know that it's really Sally authenticating? Well, we know it's Sally authenticating because that authentication is being done on a corporate enrolled device. And that device uh, has, it's associated with Sally and it's on an IP address that is associated with the geographic area where we expect Sally to be. And the multi-factor authentication was done recently, meaning within the last eight hours, and that that person was you know, identified as a valid, currently active user, right? Not somebody that's disabled. And each time they access a resource, their you know, those criteria are evaluated. You know, that's really important. So we have to look then at some of the weaknesses that could potentially exist in zero trust. So in a zero trust approach, you still have other risks, which you have to think about, like uh, one that really just captures a lot of organizations all the time are, okay, so now you've zero trust authenticated a user on a computer but the browser has been the web browser, and I don't really care which web browser we're talking about here, um, but the web browser has had a malicious extension installed in the browser. That malicious, malicious extension then proceeds to snatch and relay outbound to the bad guys what those cached credentials are that are on that computer. Now that could be uh, grabbing uh, sessions, session cookies, or just grabbing the password straight up. And I've seen this twice in the last 12 months. So, you know, in terms of what can you do about that? Well, let's talk briefly about that. I think that in a good organization, you should have very, very solid end user awareness training, cybersecurity awareness training, and of course, phishing testing, phishing training going on with that. But then you have to make sure that you have HR management practices and policies that put managers in charge of looking at staff participation rates. Because if you have a really good technical control system, but you're not, it's not coupled with a company policy, and enforced by HR, then it just isn't going to be as effective. I'm not saying it's useless, but it's just not going to be as effective. And I see this happen 
you know, the true pivotal differentiation in every organization we work with is manager participation. That's it. Bottom line. It's manager participation. Because ultimately, at some point in time, it's an HR issue. It's not an IT issue. Right. So information security risk management is everybody's responsibility. For our clients, I actually provide them a piece of language that they can include in their hiring offer letters to uh, candidates, right? Job candidates that they're sending an offer letter to. And that language is addressing things such as, uh, oh, you, you know, you're going to be part of our organization if you accept this offer. And as such, everyone is expected to participate in information security risk management. It's everybody's responsibility and you will participate in cybersecurity awareness training, phishing testing, phishing training. You will do so in a timely fashion and, um, you know, and, and on and on and on as well. You know, always acting in accordance with the information security risk management policies of the organization, right? It's your responsibility to know what those policies are and act in accordance with them and escalate to the appropriate people if you have concerns or questions about the contents of those policies, right? Any sort of flavor of language like that is going to set the expectations straight up. And from my perspective, that's part of, you know, zero trust is this concept that you're setting the expectations for staff that they are going to have to be uh, okay with being inconvenienced in a tiny way on a regular basis because it's much better to be inconvenienced by things like, uh, you know, hey, you've got this finance computer and this finance computer is where we do the online banking and accounts payable and maybe there's some payroll stuff that's going on there. Should anybody actually be looking at, you know, TikTok or Facebook or Pinterest or whatever, you know, stupid thing like that, uh, or ESPN for that matter, or MLB, which is Major League Baseball? I mean, like, are those websites consistent with the security zone profile of doing high security, high risk financial management and personnel management activities? No, clearly not. Clearly not. However, the intestinal fortitude that it takes for an organization's leadership to make that decision, it requires them to understand that it is better for them to be slightly inconvenienced at a time of their choosing, at a pace that they can consume in tiny little bite-sized chunks compared to the true inconvenience of having all of those controls taken away from you because you're no longer in charge of the timeline. Once the bad guys have compromised you, you lose control over the timeline and the scope of you being inconvenienced. Now they're in the driver's seat of that inconvenience. They will hijack your schedule and alter your priorities substantially. And if you thought you were going to be working on productive, profitable, revenue-generating activities, well, you can forget about that 
because the bad guys just took control of your schedule. Okay, so the vast majority of the time, and I mean the vast majority of the time, over 98% of the time, what I encounter is executive management who thinks that they should be above the standards and who lack the intestinal fortitude to just simply make the decision that says, actually, the security of the organization and the desire to not have a breach or compromise is higher and it's more important than a little inconvenience. So let's say you have somebody like, uh, you know, a CFO who wants to look at ESPN on the same computer that they do all the financial management on. And, you know, obviously being the CFO, that person has, you know, effectively God level access to the financial records of the organization, including banking and payroll. Where is the definition for the security zone profile for that computer? Well, that's something that's an issue because the bad guys are specifically going after the whales in an organization. If the bad guys get into an org and they start, you know, checking out things, they're going to go look for specifically the people who have high level access and then intend to target them. They can lie low for a while and try to do lateral movement attacks and uh, try to compromise those, um, the whales, right? That's what they call it, uh, you know, whaling, because they're going after the people with high level access. So it takes the organizational leadership to have a lot of intestinal fortitude to be able to say, I'm willing to be inconvenienced where I can't see ESPN from the same computer that I do my you know, high level security, financial management and HR management things from. Okay. Now that has to extend through to other practices as well, such as let's take a look at the data sets which could potentially be compromised, breached, and leaked or stolen by the bad guys based upon where they're stored, how they're stored, and how much does one account have access to. You know, and these are all very important questions that need to be thought through. Okay. So zero trust is not a product you buy. Zero trust is a lifestyle. It is a thought process that you have to go through all of the time, every time you're evaluating a particular system. And uh, you also have to extend that further into uh, just challenging your paradigm constantly, reevaluating. Like you had the standard a year ago, is the standard still good enough? How are you evolving that? If you look at these browser compromises, what is that risk mitigation to the browser compromise with regards to malicious extensions? Well, you need to configure policies, technical controls that make it so that end users are not able to install extensions, right? This is no different than having a procurement policy that says that end users are not able to go out and apply credit card to the problem and procure whatever shadow IT is that they want. They, the technical controls need to exist to eliminate an end user's ability to just uh, procure something and integrate it with something like M365 or Azure AD that 
if they want it and they think they can just install it, well, then there should be a technical control that's going to block that and cause an alert to be escalated to the people who actually administer those systems. You know, and then when you have folks who either don't know the policy or who are acting outside of accordance with the policy, then the conversation can, you know, the IT can escalate that topic to the CISO who can then go have a conversation with that business unit manager and say, hey, we noticed that, uh, you know, Sally was trying to, you know, hire, install this particular integration into M365 or Azure AD, and we got this notification about it. And uh, have you, have you read the policy? Because <laughs> the policy says, you know, and, and then it can be a friendly conversation about, uh, hey, how do we work together to do these types of things? So if you don't have those kinds of approaches, you don't even have good financial controls in the organization either. Because what can happen is uh, sometimes there's already going to be a standard in the organization. The R&D has potentially already been done on a solution that does that business function like, you know, an asset management or asset inventory system. Let's say the company already has a standard for that, but then you've got some business unit who's like, hey, we need an asset management system. And then they go and they procure their own thing. That's called shadow IT. So this is why it's so darn important that every organization has a CISO who actually meets with the business leaders on a regular basis. That also requires those business leaders to make time to have those meetings. That is another major problem in the vast majority of organizations out there is that lack of desire to rely upon the CISO and that lack of desire to prioritize those types of meetings and make time for them. Instead, you know, I see continually where um, business owners and executives will just not make time for those meetings. They'll, they'll go and they'll pay FaceTime to it. And then, uh, you know, something else more important will come up and you just need to have a regular cadence of probably one hour a month for, a status update as to what's going on and that allows for these discussions to happen. I can tell you from direct experience that if an organization is actually going to correct their fundamental problems, then the CISO has to know in detail what is going on in the organization. And they can't know those things unless the business unit managers make time to have discussions with them and engage in open and honest, shared responsibility, collaborative behavior uh, instead of this thing. It's like, well, that's an IT problem. No, actually, it's not an IT problem. It's a shared responsibility problem. Everybody has a responsibility regarding information security risk management. Okay. And uh, a lot of it's just very relationship based. And if you're going to have relationships You've got to be able to come to the table and have open and honest communications and, and make time for each other. <clears throat> okay, so let's go back to, uh, again, this topic of the um, information security risk management um, and checks and balances and zero trust protections. Okay, zero trust protections, many of them are free as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean, these are things that should have been there from the beginning. And many of these protections. Um, that are the most effective, which are free, they're in an always-on state. Let's take an example of the 
uh, ad removal of administrator access from end users. End users should not have administrator access. This has literally been the case since probably, gee, 1997 at least, if not before that. So what risks are mitigated there? Let's take a specific example. One of the recent things that came out was the challenges associated with UEFI and Secure Boot. So UEFI, Secure Boot, and TPM are technologies that are designed to secure and to validate the integrity and authenticity of the boot environment in order to avoid malicious things loading at, you know, pre-boot. Okay. And there are certain technical prerequisites for those things. And there are ways that the vulnerabilities in secure boot can be exploited. Having end users have administrative access is one of the areas in which secure boot can be defeated. So what then are these technical prerequisites? Well, we have things like the trusted platform module, which should be standard. It should be included in your procurement policy that you're never going to buy any uh, IT technology hardware that has a computing chip that does not have a TPM. Okay, that should be there. That you should have standards for how BIOSes are configured. Uh, you should have standards about mandating UEFI and Secure Boot and having those things enabled. Each system should have a unique BIOS admin password. The firmware updates should be automated. Now, if you don't have a procurement policy that aligns your purchases with these requirements for the supported hardware, or if you don't have onboarding and setup configuration procedures that guarantee that nothing is deployed in the environment unless it has been hardened, right? This is part of secure configuration management. Then you're not going to meet those criteria, right? So let's, let's take, for example, somebody goes and they procure a, a computer that does not include capabilities for fully automated updating, secure updating of drivers, applications, firmware, BIOS, and these sorts of things. And then what if you don't have a way to actually validate those things, right? Well, then you're missing the prerequisites. You're missing some key prerequisites to getting UEFI and secure boot risks mitigated. Let's push the accelerator on this idea a little bit more. If we say that, you know, if we know that firmware updates installed in a timely fashion are one of the key risk mitigation factors for flaws in UEFI and secure boot, then that means that you have to be procuring hardware that is in alignment with a manufacturer who's dedicated to the shortest development and deployment timeline for those firmware updates. Okay, so who exactly is that manufacturer? So ultimately, <clears throat> the price of the product 
is not about acquisition cost. The price of the product is about total cost of ownership, including what capabilities exist or don't exist regarding um, things like always on, zero trust, always on risk mitigations. Now, by the way, right, I said that basically a lot of these risk mitigations are free. That's absolutely true. And what I mean by free is I'm saying that the knowledge is out there. It's simply a configuration change or it's simply work that you should have been doing for the last, you know, 20 years. You know, it's it's a one time setup thing. In some cases, it's just a master policy modification in, in terms of like technical controls. And then any future system that you enroll into the system properly gets those configurations, right? So uh, when I'm talking about free, I'm talking about something that you're not having to pay like a monthly subscription fee for, for a piece of software that is you know, supposed to do secure configuration management for you. So it, IT labor is not free, nor should it be free. You know, very intelligent, experienced people are the most financially viable way that you can eliminate and manage risk in an environment, especially information security risk. So obviously people are not free, but this is about you don't need to go buy more products in the vast majority of cases. I did a webinar on what's called the CIS community defense model. And that's out available for viewing uh, freely on qpcsecurity.com under the educational articles area. So again, that's on qpcsecurity.com. And in that community defense model, I list out a whole bunch of things that are just free to do. You do not need to buy any fancy pants software to get them done. It's just a matter of just do it. It's either a single one-time configuration or it's simply modifying your procedures to get those configurations uh, done properly when you acquire and deploy something and put it into production. And then some of these are just baseline practices that should have been codified in a policy with a shared responsibility model. And then, and then you have to have checks and balances and things like total quality management applied to it. Um, give you a great example. If you look at the community defense model, it says that there is there are you know, these are the top five things. They basically rank things. And like, they'll say, these are the top five things that if you do these really, really, really well, you're mitigating the vast majority of risk in an organization. It's absolutely true. So my point is, if you're not doing those five things really, really, really well, well, then your efforts are focused in the wrong place. Because you've got to do the fundamentals well first before going on and doing fancy pants things. So that's a big problem that I see happening across the board is, I mean, yeah, I see it in the IT service provider community extensively where 
people are just enamored with buying more tools and you know up, you know deploying more things and because buying a tool and deploying it is fairly easy and straightforward what is not easy and straightforward is to do the work of a CISO, which is to listen to the business units, listen to and, and seek to understand the problems that exist in an organization, and craft policies, processes, procedures, checks and balances, a shared responsibility model with total quality management so that things are done right, everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing, that there's checks and balances, and that even if mistakes are made in the process, they're going to be caught at a later time, preferably not too much later. So, you know, that is hard. That is an excruciatingly challenging process, which is, and it's time consuming. And because of those two things, it's very difficult, and it's, this is exactly why the vast majority of organizations have either no policies or they have policies that are ineffective. They're just complete theater. They don't align with the problems of the company. They don't uh, align with the actual technical controls that are in place. I mean, I think one of the things that's a particular hot button of mine is the poverty mentality that I see coming from a, a number of business leaders. You know, their poverty mentality is like, oh, yeah, we can just uh, we'll just do the policies on our own. And then they don't even share them with the IT department. You know, so you got basically business leaders who are trying to do security and compliance theater by going out to the Internet and grabbing some template for a policy and, you know, doing their best with it. Sure. Uh, but then they just publish it <laughs> and they don't share it with it. They don't actually present it to any of the stakeholders for input. They don't verify that there's any alignment between processes and technical controls and what the policy says, you know? So it's just, it's fake. It's just total fakery. And it's difficult to have any respect for that kind of a process because it's security theater. Right? It's not really actually mitigating any real risk. And you know, what's the cost of that stakeholder engagement? Well, it's time, right? That's it. It's time. And you have to have the emotional capital and willingness to seek to understand other people and get involved. So, you know, I go back to, yeah, it's really hard to be a CISO and it's really hard and time consuming to do those things. Yet simultaneously, everybody needs a CISO as far as I'm concerned. You don't have to have a CIO. You don't have to have a CTO. I think you do have to have a CISO, but they better be the right CISO who has the capabilities and skills of a CIO and CTO. Because you, you know, you, there are CISOs that do meet those requirements, but there are CTOs and CIOs who don't have the security and policy capabilities. And uh, you know, yeah, how many? how many people in IT are you going to hire is the question, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so just to recap, I would strongly suggest that if you are trying to prevent security breaches, you're trying to prevent your organization from being hacked, 
right? You're trying to prevent bad things from happening from an information security risk management perspective. I strongly suggest going and taking a look at that webinar I did that was on the CIS and community defense model and you know, making sure that you're doing the fundamentals. If you haven't done those fundamentals and mastered them, then like I said, you're just focusing on the wrong priorities. And for a fundamental that I see most organizations not doing well, in fact, there's only one organization that I know of that does that well, <laughs> that's my company, uh, and that is you know, inventory management, ongoing inventory assessment, the, the TQM aspects of it, the total quality management aspects of it, and you have to have the right checks and balances and revisiting. You have to have like forced controls in place from procurement to acquisition, right? Because there's a difference of between the time you order it and you receive it. What have you done there? And there are things that should be done. And then, and who's doing it? And then what happens, you know, post-acquisition and then configuration deployment to end users, lifecycle management, continuous vulnerability assessment, it goes on and on and on, right? So my point is, is that that right there, doing proper asset inventory management and all the things associated with it, hugely important and valuable. So if you're not doing that fundamental well, get on that. 